Hey, you found us. This is a podcast of Carbon Valley Lutheran Church in Firestone, Colorado, just north of Denver. We here at CVL firmly believe that community is built, not found, that it's local, not virtual. So we encourage everyone to find a local church and help them build their community and be a service to them. With that said, we pray that these podcasts supplement and not replace your spiritual journey. If you'd like to learn more about us at CVL, you can check us out on Facebook or on the web at carbonchurch.com, or even better, stop by in person. We worship at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. May the Lord bless your day. Gracious, good morning to all of you. Two ways to follow along, I suppose. Uh, not going to repeat the whole text, but it's on pages 5 and 6. If you're a note-taker, that's what I do when I'm here. Preachers are the worst listeners when they actually go to church. So uh, this is always nice for me to take sermon notes. It keeps me awake. I'd split that into thirds. There's going to be three basic points that the Lord makes here in this section. Here we're going to try a difficult thing. My wife tells me as I get older, I become like my father who can take a five-minute incident and turn it into a two-hour story. Um, But here we go. A brief thing. Tim's right in the little note that he put in there. I'm a national mission counselor, which means I fly around and act smart and talk a lot. A lot of it's on the East Coast, a little bit in the Midwest. Uh, Last week was all over Montana, which is a wonderful group of people in addition to beautiful scenery. But uh, that that's not really where I pay attention to anything important in life uh, because it's just airports and hotels and cars and you end up being the guy that parking lot like this, you're pressing it, you're trying to remember what car you are. You know, it, that's not where I see life. I see life in my in my little apartment complex where I live, right between Westminster and Thornton, divided by 25. <clears throat> uh, we had lived in a different apartment for a year. We moved to this one. They describe it as a townhouse portion of the apartment complex. I don't know what the difference is. All I know is I got a garage underneath on the first level facing west. There's a little parking lot out there. I enter in my apartment by going up the stairs to the main, the second floor. That's where uh, my porch is and the kitchen and the living room. And then the third floor up there, that's where the bedrooms are at. When I'm home, I spend some time out on the porch in the second level above the garage. I got a little mini garden out there, drink coffee. There's a big open space. You can see the mountains. So that's my world out there. Yesterday, however, I took my coffee, middle of the morning, and I just went down the stairs, down to the main level, and we got parking out there. There's a 14-building complex, but there's parking out there in front of our building, and that roadway that goes through there, I guess you would call it the main road through the apartment complex. Now, it's got speed bumps, and there's other roads, but that seems to be the one out of these 14 buildings it takes you a little further south and gets you down to 144th Avenue. So people drive through there. Here's the point of this background. Sipping my coffee. Here comes a car speeding through. Blaring music. Not bad music. I don't mind the kids blaring the music. Loud car. Don't mind that it's a loud car. Fix your muffler, but it's loud. I get it. But he's going fast. I knew the car. I knew the kid. Lives two doors down. Parents divorced at some point. He spent some time with his dad. That's who lives in our apartment complex. Didn't know the kid's name. I just see him occasionally because I'm not home very much. And I was in that dilemma that you've been into. 
Because to get to his house from where he parked, he was going to have to walk past me. Do I say something or not? Because it's not an apartment complex for geriatrics. There are some of us there. And there are some who are older than I. But it's also lousy with kids. We've got a lot of kids. There's a playground. There's a big pool, a big open space. And there's always kids playing there. And kids dart in and out all the time. They don't think that's a road. That's a parking lot. And we all drive five, six miles an hour. And I've seen those kids dart in and out of cars. And he could very easily have run them over. Do you say something or not? In a live and let live culture, don't hardly know him, don't know your kid, I know your old man. I said something. And you can tell that I'm still pondering, should I have said something? 24 hours later, right? Wouldn't it be fun to be Jesus? And you'd know when to say something and when to keep your mouth shut and just let the body language talk? Wouldn't that be fun just for a day to be Jesus? In, in a crazy culture like this where you, you think there are times you should speak and there are times where you should keep quiet, but you don't know which is which. And nobody wants to be Karen, which I never understand why they call it Karen. Every Karen I've ever known is a nice lady, gentle, soft-spoken, servant-minded. I don't know a bad Karen, but apparently that's what we call them. If you're nasty in the story, you're a Karen. Is that right? Or you don't want to be the grumpy old guy. You don't want to be a grumpy old guy. Hey, you stupid kid. That's not what I called him. But I might have come across as a grumpy old guy. You don't want to be there, right? It would be fun to be like Jesus and just know when's the right time and what do you say at that time that's going to be helpful to somebody. That is exactly what occurs in Mark chapter 9. It's the right time and the right place because Jesus picked it and it's the right words because he knew that's what the disciples needed to hear. These are not just loose hangers on. This is the foundation of the early church. We're not that far removed from the point where Jesus dies and he rises and spends 40 days with some final instructions and then he said, I'm out of here. It's between you and the Holy Spirit. I'll be watching from heaven. I'm with you, but through the Holy Spirit. But I'm out of here and it's on you. And so he takes him aside, perhaps a year, year and a half into the ministry, alone, just the inner circle of 12, and he says, Here's three important things to keep in mind. First of which is this. Verse 31, the second part. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. That's one of those summary passages that you could maybe circle if you got your own Bible. Twelve, fifteen passages as you go through the New Testament that sum it all up. Kind of like John 3.16. You get no further than that one. It's still okay. God so loved the world, he gave his one only son. A little bit more like Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. This is kind of one of those passages that says the whole entire gospel in one succinct sentence. He said to them, Son of man's going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They'll kill him, and after three days he will rise. Beautiful statement. Didn't go over very well with the disciples. Verse 32, they didn't understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Why didn't they understand? Well, betrayed doesn't go over well. And you can see how 12 guys are looking around. He's saying he's talking to us. Which of you other 11 knuckleheads is the one that's going to betray the Lord? 
That doesn't go over well. You're going to die? This has been comfortable, Jesus. There's been some opposition from time to time, but we like the miracles. We like the insights of the Old Testament. We trust you're the Messiah. We would prefer that you not die. That doesn't sound right. They had warped ideas of what the kingdom is and what the Messiah would do. So this did not go over with them. And he takes them aside and he more or less reminds them, these are things that you should have known and remembered because many of you went to the same synagogue around Lake Capernaum, Lake Galilee in Capernaum as I did. You know Psalm 16. You know Psalm 22. You know that it said that the Messiah would in fact be betrayed by somebody that was close to him. You know Isaiah 53 where it says the Messiah is not going to be a king who sits on a throne only. He will be a king who suffers mentally, physically, and spiritually before he is executed. And you know what is stated in Romans 4 and in Hebrews, that the concepts of eternal life and resurrection are real. Many Jews already in the first century did not believe in eternal life. They believed in a non-existence after death. But Jesus said, you're part of the Old Testament people who have always understood what the Old Testament is saying clearly, that there is eternal life and that there is gospel and good news, and forgiveness. This did not square with what the disciples in part thought of as the kingdom of God and the vast majority of the culture thought of as the kingdom of God. Everything that he was saying did, did not fit with their ideas of what the kingdom would look like, what Messiah would do. And so he corrected them and the correction and the further instructions in place today. It could be the prosperity gospel. Remember that one? Big thing in the 70s. It's, it's still around, more or less. That if you love God, go to church, do the right thing. Your bank book will balance. The house will be nice. That's the prosperity gospel. Uh, many who come to the United States from other parts of the world, Christians, are just shocked by the thinking that they find in Protestant churches in the United States, including Lutheranism, that the gospel, that the kingdom of God is primarily attached to measuring God by the good things that he gives us in this life. Or a gospel that's a happiness gospel. It begins in 1905 in California, from whence cometh all good things. It's on Azusa Street in Los Angeles. It's called Pentecostalism and charismatic stuff. And something breaks out at this house where this church is meeting. They speak in tongues and they rejoice and they start laughing about that. And it pops up again in the 70s, primarily in Orlando. And then it hops up to Toronto, called the Toronto Blessing, where it wasn't enough to just laugh and roll around on the floor with giddiness. Now you had to bark like a dog. That was called the happiness gospel. We've been through that phase. Then there's the political kingdom of God, the political gospel that this certainly must be the second Israel, this thing called the United States of America. Therefore, if you want to truly have the kingdom of God align with the nation known as Israel today, because Jesus is either coming back there or he's coming back here, that this is the kingdom of God. Or probably the most dangerous one, that's experiential gospel. These words are nice, but they're not true until I feel like they are true. I need to experience that. That's not faith. It is judging whether God's true or not, depending on my mood. 
For followers then and followers now, Jesus clarifies the kingdom of God. And he says, it's not primarily happiness. It's certainly not a political thing, and it's not experiential. It's as simple as this. One of you will betray me in a major way. All of you will betray me in your own way, shape, and form. And we continue to betray him until this day. And he says, somebody's going to have to intervene. God's kingdom, God's gospel, is that there will be a Messiah who intervenes and lives in your place. And on top of that, suffers in your place. And for whatever illogical reason, God says that is sufficient. Perfection has been attained and applied to you. Guilt is taken away, applied to you. And whoever believes this, and this statement alone, that all is forgiven, that is the kingdom of God. Second thing that he points out, clarifies for disciples back then and now, verses 33 and 34. They came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Uh, this is a scary little section. This is the one in which Jesus told them, and he's telling us, I know what's in your heads. I know what's going on in your heart and your mind. And understand the format here. Uh, in the Middle East, particularly in Jewish culture, but it was also prevalent in other cultures too, somebody who was deemed as a spiritual guru, a wise person, would gather a group of people around him a large group of people, he would share his sayings. In the case of the Jews, that would be the Old Testament, along with rabbinic law. He would give insights, and then he would kind of grade you as you're hanging out with him and say, all right, I've had 25 of you. Time to pare it down that to maybe 10. You get to hang around. The rest of you are voted off the island for now. And then you would typically keep three, four, or five, and the rabbi would take these followers, and they would walk with him and talk, and watch, and eat, and sleep until they are old enough and wise enough that they break off and they become a rabbi on their own. An itinerant person going from town to town, sharing wisdom and gathering a few followers that he takes on as sort of lifelong students of his own. Jesus followed that time-honored Middle Eastern custom and gathering a larger group of people around him. We read then the Gospels, and then in Luke, there's 70 of them, he says, that he sends out two by two, and then he pairs it down to 12. That's who he's got with him. That's who he takes away to Capernaum and says, come to this house. I'm going to instruct this inner circle of you 12 who are privileged to be with me, the ultimate rabbi. And what happens? They start arguing about, all right, he's the general, but which of us is the captain? There's heated debate among the disciples in hushed tones as they're following maybe 10, 15 yards behind the, the rabbi as to which of us is second in command. What's in the background there is perhaps the transfiguration. Remember that incident? That had surely happened or happened shortly before this. Jesus took three disciples, Peter, James, and John. He's up on top of a mountain, and who appears? Moses, who's been dead for 1,500 years, but alive and well in heaven. And Elijah had been dead about 700 years, but alive and well, talking there with Christ. Those three got to see it. Is there a little bit of this going on from those three? 
were they perfectly fine, but the others were jealous of what occurred? Or James and John gave us a little insight to that when they came along with Mama, remember that one? And approached Jesus and said, we know you get the main throne in heaven, but can we have the side thrones on either side of you? So this vying is nothing new, and Jesus has said, you understand the kingdom, now, do you understand that what you're going to be asked to do is to serve one another, coming later on, but in the meantime, I know your hearts. I know your hearts. And knock it off. I, I, I think we understand this. A uh, little example from my family. I have a niece. Her name is Hillary. She went through Columbia University, New York, got her essential degrees, and then went to law school at University of Michigan. It hurts me to even say that because I'm a Michigan State guy, but that's where she got her law degree. She's magna cum something or the other, scored a big job. She's a high-powered Boston lawyer. At the same time, she's a humble Christian woman. I don't know how those two square, but that's her life. She, named Hillary, did her internship for somebody named Hillary. Okay? When she was not the president's wife any longer, the Clintons are out of the White House, it was Senator Hillary. And she had eight to ten interns every year, most of them girls. And Hillary was one of those. And what did they do that first week or two as they moved into their offices there? And the Clintons kept their offices in the Harlem area at that time. They moved into the offices. And the girls... As Hillary describes it, she said it was like ninth grade all over again. The cattiness and the snarkiness and the ones who want to get closer to Hillary and talk to her until they all figured out Hillary really doesn't care about you. <laughs> she really doesn't. And so there wasn't going to be any relationship. But there was about a two-week period where everybody wanted to be second in command. And maybe even my niece fell into that because, after all, her name is Hillary. And I think we understand what's going on there. It's the same thing as what's going on here in the kingdom of God. And God knows that this is in our hearts and that this has always been going on and always will go on. It, it begins in school when we first start hanging out with kids and competing with them. It certainly occurs in high school and college. In the workplace, it, it goes on. I think it goes on in the old folks' homes. I used to make visits in the old folks home they're arguing over bingo rules and who won and who didn't it's this contention the antidote is coming later but for right now please understand what jesus is saying here if this is how we're going to think that we're vying for position in this world he says i i know your hearts i know your minds jeremiah 17 9 not a thought not an action in private can be hidden from the God who judges. And then there's this scary one from the book of Hebrews. To me, one of the scariest passages in the Bible. The word of God is a double-edged sword that penetrates deeply and exposes everything. And once we're terrified by that, the flip side of it is the God who not only knows and condemns, but the God who also forgives. 1 John 3. Even when our own hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, greater than our consciences, and says, I forgive. That's the kingdom of God. 
This is the God who knows our hearts. And this is the God that then sets the bar and says, this is what the kingdom will look like day to day, verses 35 to 37. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child, had him stand among them, taking them in his arms. He said, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Mark's gospel would be the one that if you took one of the four gospels and said, let's turn it into a movie for the 21st century, it would be Mark. Because there's a lot of wham and boom and action. It's the one loaded with miracles. Only 16 chapters long, but it is action. It's a hard one to put down. John, you can do a couple chapters and go, eh, pretty heavy, I better think about it. Mark, you can do all 16 chapters in one sitting because it is that intriguing and that full of action. Having said that, there are still ideas there, just like there are in Matthew and Luke and John. Somebody has suggested that perhaps the theme verse of Mark's gospel in the middle of all the action occurs in chapter 10, and I think this is a valid point. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for all. So the idea of servant-mindedness is there, but man, that does not go against, or does not go over well in the culture. I was not servant-minded driving up I-25 this morning. I, I was not servant-minded in stopping at the Starbucks a block from my house before I came here and waiting while somebody ordered something with three gerunds and two adjectives, but please no whip, or whatever that is. I was not servant-minded. I, I find it hard to be servant-minded in this culture, and so do you. And this is a section in which Christ is saying it's not the culture. It is counter-cultural. You will serve one another if you're my disciples. 38 years I've lived in Colorado. The exception, I took a one-year flip-out thing where I lived in the Caribbean in an island called Grenada, right in their constitution, without apology, it says, we are a Christian nation. Sometimes you'd wonder, but then you would see the people, especially on the poor, the northern side of the island, they honestly believe that. And they gave me a little object lesson one time on how they follow Christian servant-mindedness. Uh, Grenada, I was there in 2006. 2005, they got hit by a hurricane. Government gave each person, each adult, over $21,000, That's a lot of money in Grenada. 5000 bucks to fix up your home. What'd they do? They bought cars. So all of a sudden, an island, 12 by 22 miles, is inhabited in, not by 500 cars, but by 5,000 cars. And where do you park? I encountered that difficulty and I'm pretty good. I used to drive a semi. I can parallel park almost anywhere, even in New York. But it was tough in Grenada. And I didn't get it, how you park there. And here's what you do. Where when you park in a parallel fashion here, the goal is not to hit the person in front of you and be touching them, right? That's a no-no. In Grenada, every two cars are supposed to be touching. And by doing that, what do you do? you increase the amount of cars you could get into this one space. Maybe it's only one or two, but that's important. 
And so I encountered that because I'm trying to parallel park, and out come a couple guys from the restaurants and the houses. They move their cars, and they bump them up against each other to make enough space for me to get my little widget car in there. And I go like this, and the guy simply looks at my dumb face, and he says, in Grenada, we help each other. In that simple little way. I know it's something that you've heard a lot. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then you look at the Philippians passage, which goes right with it and says, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. To be servant-minded in your day-to-day -day life. I know you've heard it a lot, because back when I was a parish pastor in Thornton, a little south of here, a lady that I love dearly came out of church one day and said, I don't want to hear any more of this servant-mindedness stuff. <laughs> Apparently I'd said it too often. She said, I don't want to hear this anymore. And I'm shaking hands with people as they're leaving. I said, how, how about you hang out and explain that to me? And she did. She stuck around. She explained it to me. She said, I am terribly servant-minded to the point of tears. And neither my family, nor my neighbors, nor anyone seems to appreciate it, and it's certainly not reciprocated. I said a lot of dumb things that when I was a pastor. Maybe the only smart thing I ever said was to that lady when I said, I guess you understand Jesus better than the rest of us then. Because he certainly served. It was not appreciated. And it was not reciprocated. And you think Jesus didn't know what he was asking the disciples? I ask you to serve. It may not be appreciated. And it likely will not be reciprocated. He used as his object lesson on that day he, a child. We're not told the age. He gathered a child, apparently small enough, could get in his arms. And he's in a culture where they didn't have that German phrase yet. That the children are supposed to be seen and not heard. Anybody grow up with that one? But he's in a culture that that's what they practice. You didn't speak till you were 12, and then all of a sudden you're supposed to become a son of the law. In public forum, you didn't speak as a man until you're 30. Kids, you stay quiet in that culture. He takes this child, says this thing that you look at as just an inconvenience for most of life. You give a cup of water to that child. And they caught on. And I pray that we do too. You know what the kingdom is. You heard it clarified by Jesus. You know that he reads hearts and minds and knows what we do day to day. And he simply says, as you walk, interact in your neighborhood, shop in a store, park in a parking lot, whatever it may be, practice a little servant-mindedness. It will not be appreciated. It certainly won't be reciprocated. But you will have given somebody a little taste of what Jesus is like. God help you to that end.